Hi, I'm Deb Crow, and welcome to season two of the Heart Centered Leadership Podcast. This is a podcast where we connect, learn, and laugh together with strong leaders from all over the globe. Here, you will learn from peers you haven't even met yet. You will gain new tools to add to your leadership toolbox. Because whether you're a C-suite executive or a first-time entrepreneur, we all contend with challenges and there's always room for improvement if we choose to seek it. So please pull up a chair and listen in. This is the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. Welcome back to Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. I'm always on this journey, whether I'm on social media, having a meaningful conversation to source out heart-centered leaders for the show. And I found this gentleman, John Davis, on LinkedIn. And I don't remember if it was a post or a glimpse of something he had written, but I just knew that our worlds had intersected at that moment. And I reached out and I said, John, I really want to have you on the show. And here we are. So, John, welcome to Imperfect. Oh, Deb, thanks. And I love the name of the show, Imperfect. It probably defines a lot about my life. <laughs> well, join the club. Uh, we're, we're, we're in season two now. So you're joining the ranks of global heart-centered leaders. And, and we all have Imperfect as part of our, our name and who we are. And John, you have had such an interesting, dynamic, multiple global or continent career. I wanted you to just give a little insight to our listeners today. Tell them a little bit about John Davis and and your career and a bit of your story. Sure. Great. Deb, thanks. And congratulations on season two and and, uh, a successful first season, by the way. Um, Listen, my career is probably summed up best as a portfolio of experiences. And I kind of came to that realization uh, only very recently in the last year or so, as I was looking back and thinking about what are my next steps going to be and, and looking back, you know, I, I, I've gone through a number of different iterations. So in other words, I didn't just have one 40 year or 35 year or 30 year career with one organization. I've been with consumer products companies. I've been in high tech. Uh, I've been in, in hospitality. I've started two companies. Um, and then I found myself about two decades ago at the start of the 21st century teaching at the University of Washington. And uh, lo and behold, I had an invitation to go teach in Singapore as a professor. Um, And that was supposed to be for six months. And that unfolded into a multi-year journey in Singapore. I returned with my wife uh, about a year and a half ago to to the U.S. after nearly two decades living in Singapore, sort of on the academic, but also on the uh, leadership development side. Um, And throughout that journey, you know, I've had really good fortune to meet really wonderful people, um, both in business, outside of business, working across multiple countries. And and one of the best parts about it, Deb, is, is, and I never thought I would do this, but when I got into the sort of the academic side in that second half of my career, I started writing and publishing, and uh, and it was an absolute gas because I never thought I, first off, would want to do it, let alone have the patience to do it. Uh, because as you can kind of tell from my trajectory, I tend to have a, a bit of an attention issue with things. So I um, got into that and fell in love, and and so I've had an opportunity to to do a lot of research and publishing, and and here I am today having this wonderful chance to chat with you. Well, I love it. I, you know, I think we all have a little bit of a an an attention 
deficit to some degree. So I, I was laughing while you were saying that. I, I align there. I just think that's our inner genius just just waiting to get out there. <laughs> I like that. I'll take that and I'll run with that. The inner genius. Thank you. There you go. <laughs> so my first leadership question is, I know that you feel that style and passion are important, but you also feel that they're not just the only ingredients that is worthy of being emulated in leadership. What other qualities, I'll just give you a little hint, maybe heart-centered qualities, <laughs> do you think need to align with that? And what have you what have you observed, John, and, and what do you pride yourself on for your own leadership where you are now? So that's a great question. Thank you for that. So a couple of ways to look at this. First off, the, the endpoint answer to that is one of the key points is, is that notion of empathy. But let me kind of work into that because when I started out in my career and indeed in looking at a lot of leaders as you have as well, there is this sort of notion that you have to deploy what we learned in business school if you went to business school. And you have to be, in effect, that hard-charging executive who's got the answer to everything. Um, and your domain expertise is what drives your your reputation inside an organization. But the real, real the reality of it for me anyway was was as I began to to work with with people inside an organization. My background is in marketing and brand strategy and strategy overall. But much of that kind of went by the wayside, and more of it was about how you work with people. And that working with people was not about saying, "Here's your target." Make sure you hit it. Let's report back every week and have a serious conversation about why you're either on or off target. That really kind of fell by the wayside because people just didn't respond to that. And I also realized that in my own world, I really wanted, I wanted to treat people like, or I wanted others to treat me, you know, very nicely in some, in some ways. And I wanted that same empathy to come through in the way I worked with others. And so early on, I started to evolve for my own needs, a much more of a listener oriented point of view. Um, trying to be sensitive to what's going on in somebody's life. You know, they might come with a great background, but the moment they walk in because they've had a bad day at home, you know, that's going to color the way they are and you need to be attuned to that. Um, so empathy uh, to make a long roundabout explanation uh, come to a fine point is really key. And I know we talk a lot about empathy right now, but it really is an important aspect because there's the listening side to it. There is how you respond to it. There is being attuned to the pressures people face. And I think all that rolls up into what's important in leadership now, and for me as well. Oh, I agree with you. And and I think having uh, a deep level of empathy, and then you add on attentive listening to that, it I think it leaves an exploration of limitless potential for team leads. Yeah. You know, I, I get into many conversations where people say, well, I say six, he or she says nine. <laughs> And I'm like, but what if you sit in the observer's chair and look at both and see that they can be bookends and complement each other? Yeah. So it's going back, you know, to the basics of we don't know what we don't know. Right. I'm moving. I'm moving question two to number three, because <laughs> you just said something that gave me a super aha moment. So I, I'm, I'm giving you a different question that I didn't anticipate <laughs> because I get into this conversation a lot with my leaders business school, yeah, academic uh, teachings of business acumen. You said hard charging. Yeah. yeah. Love that term. 
How can we, in your opinion, now that you're in the academic space, how can we move forward to implement more heart-centered leadership qualities or a model like I use to further soften that hard charging, what I'm going to call lowering that wall of resistance on our chest when we're leading? Oh, my goodness. What It's an all-encompassing question. So, you know, I, did, I didn't say this was going to be easy, right? It's a great question. And, and, and part of it, you know, I, a few years ago, I co-authored a book with a colleague from Australia. His name is uh, Dr. Dr. Mark Farrell. And the book was about what, what higher education needs to do worldwide to pivot into the new world. And the backdrop to that was really simple. And it gets to the heart of what you're asking. And that is, you know, much of what is taught, particularly in business schools, has not changed fundamentally in terms of the approach for the better part of six or seven decades, right? So there's either a case method or a variation on the case method. Uh, you learn the fundamentals in year one and year two, if it's a two-year MBA program, you begin to do your own specialization. But in all cases, what's rarely focused on are what we talk about a lot in, in, in our day-to-day work, which is the soft skills. And the soft skills are the hard skills. So what is what needs to happen, I think, is a complete flip of, of the academic equation because those hard skills, we can get anywhere. We can get those on our devices, like my phone right here. So the fundamental insights, the knowledge is ubiquitous. What's lacking is the ability to prepare people uh, in a business school context, but even outside of business schools, any kind of graduate program in a world where they have to work with people. Because it's very rare you're going to leave any kind of an educational environment and not work with people. So the question becomes, how can you do that and how can schools help do that? But there's an, there's another series of things that schools need to do too. They need to change the tenure and reward process for the types of research that are encouraged because still not enough of it is around the soft side of, of skills. There are some areas and there are people like Adam Grant just do a phenomenal job in this space. Uh, and we need more voices like that to continue to accelerate what'll help people become more successful when they leave their education. Oh, absolutely. And I'm I'm a big fan of Adam Grant and I love his new book, Think Again. And and you're right. He takes, I like to call common sense is not common practice. And he takes that approach. Because yeah. if we look at business acumen and you look at the knowledge and the skills and the ability needed, emotional intelligence is threaded into each one of those elements of the acumen. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think the hard charging is becoming soft and introducing yeah. because the world has changed. It's not It's not the cliche I used to hear from my Irish Nana, times are a change and we're in it. Like it's not coming. We're here. We're not waiting for the tsunami. We're navigating it. Absolutely. And, and to add to that, Deb, the you're right on the on the uh, business acumen component to it, and I think a lot of the work that we get to do, you and I get to do, and others get to do, is on that leadership acumen piece. And it's the intersection of those where I think much most organizational work is starting to converge. Um, and I think the pandemic has actually accelerated that because we've had to, right? And and if you don't adjust, if you don't develop that other piece. Um, then fundamentally, you're going to lose control of the organization. You're going to lose control of, of people's desire to produce that discretionary effort in what they do. And so that leadership acumen piece um, is going to drive, I think, much of what happens from here going forward for the rest of this century. Oh, absolutely. And I, 
I'm now going to ask you my my question that will have permanent residence for as long as I do this podcast. Share with us, share with us and the listeners what imperfections does John bring to his heart centered leadership. Oh, I love that question too. Um, <clears throat> imperfection would be uh, a bit of impatience, um, and impatience because I I find myself often getting into uh, 20 steps down the road. Um, and when I'm on step nine, um, I suddenly have another two other steps I'd like to do in a different direction. And consequently, I might weave my way into a different place and, and sort of lose sight of the original um, objective. And it's partly because along the way, I, I get a little bit impatient with what I want results to be now. Um, and as a consequence, I have to sort of dial back that, that impatience and channel or rechannel the enthusiasm toward just get this next piece baked a bit more. I love that. So I, I'm going to make a big assumption to say you're a vivid visionary with your thinking. Oh, I, I'm sure. Why not? I'll accept that. I, I, thank you for that. I, it's so much of, of what I've had the chance to do has been around um, long-term strategic ideas, right? And, and trying to find ways to, to bring people along with that. But I've been a part of some wonderful teams and organizations where that's been allowed to, to uh, gestate and, 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 and blossom. And so some of it is really because of uh, folks I've gotten a good chance to work with and, and who share that idea that long-term vision and helping an organization um, is is really the key. And I think actually it's one of the problems we face in businesses today is particularly publicly traded companies. And we all know this, but we've got such a short-term focus and it's I think it's poisoning um, organizations, unfortunately. Well, I talk about leaders at the helm, the, the CEOs, you know, you see it worldwide. I see it worldwide. It's really hard to lead and anticipate at a high level when you're navigating a ship through a tsunami, maintaining that vision, a culture, some self-care, positivity, mindset, it's a tremendous amount of pressure. So I often say to executive VPs, pull up a chair and sit in it and be the observer. Because you tell me all the time how you don't want to be at the helm. <laughs> But we have to have that heart-centered quality to look to look at what they're seeing and have their vantage point. Yes, I know you don't want to be in that in that seat driving that that ship through the storm. But that's where, again, what we talked about already. That's where your empathy really comes in as a COO, a CFO, anybody on the executive team who is being led by the CEO, it's a tremendous amount of pressure. It absolutely is. And it's probably one of the loneliest places in the world if you're an organization head, right? It is. Um, and, then, and and I hear it so much. And But people, you know, perception, they see the fancy office, the fancy suit, the fancy car, and they think they have it all. And they really don't. They may, from an extrinsic point of view, but they're very, very lonely. And I'm I'm happy to hear you say that because I often ask my guests who are in those type of positions or hold that level of leadership. And I think it's hard to, to verbally express that, but 
it's another part of that vulnerability, which I love in being heart centered because none of us are perfect. No, that's right. And, and, and you look at the leaders and you name the organization. And I think by and large, the majority would say that, that the biggest challenge for them is who can they confide in? Yeah. Um, because they, their C-suite colleagues, and certainly those a level or two below that, are rarely ones that they feel like they can confidently and um, confidentially confide in for a whole host of reasons, some purely uh, psychological, and some, if it's publicly traded, might be, practically speaking, um, a variation on proprietary. But they need some group of people that they can shoot the breeze with and share these ideas with, whether it's a coach or colleagues in other organizations who share similar stresses. Um, absolutely. It's that safe space. And it's nice to hear you saying that because I don't often get to have that conversation on the podcast. So I'm, I'm really, really happy that you alluded to that. Now, one of the things that you wanted to talk about, I decided to put around uh, my last leadership question. And I asked you one of the things that you'd like to talk about. And you said, what businesses and leaders worldwide must do to transform into a force for good, not just maker of goods. And I know where you're going to go with this, but I would love for you to unpack that and frame to the listeners. What did you mean by that? Yeah, thank you. It's So in short, we've obviously through this past year, the pandemic in particular, but it's not just the pandemic, we're facing converging crises. Um, and I believe business has a fundamental role globally to play in resolving these crises, partly because in many ways, business is, is the instigator of some of these unbeknownst to, to businesses. If you think about global warming and the issues, challenges with that, uh, social injustice, um, you've got growing wealth disparities, and certainly uh, the pandemic right now, all of these have put incredible pressures on societies everywhere. There is no one government that has the ability to do this worldwide, but there is an organization writ large called business that has a footprint in every major country. Challenges is every business kind of operates like a franchise. So the only common thread they have is they need to be profitable. Um, and it's an antecedent to what was taught in business schools. This is a way you run and, and, and construct a successful business. And that's how I'm defined. And you mentioned some of the accoutrements to that for people in publicly traded companies in particular. My point on it is that businesses now need to shift what that is from making goods for profit reasons into what's a societal good that they can help to resolve the challenges that they've created in the first place. And uh, and business is not just a, an abstract organization or institution to the sidelines of what we do. It's, it's a social good, right? I mean, it, we spend more of our lives in some kind of an organization than we do at home. And uh, and therefore, a lot of our social infrastructure, a lot of our social fabric comes from the organizations where we work and businesses where we work. And so businesses need to be much more involved directly, not just donating, but actually being heavily involved in things like the ESG, the Environment, Social and Governance, governance Movement, uh, in order to help resolve these things. So the point behind it is not just making goods, but becoming a force for good. And that's going to require a fundamental restructuring of how businesses look at their business model and their definition of success. And that's what I'm focusing on. Well, I'm happy to hear that. I uh, was in a conversation twice last week with two different clients talking about ESG. So isn't that the alignment's coming? Isn't that interesting? It is. It is. And you know, what's interesting about it too, Deb, is, is there is, there's overwhelming evidence, uh, the last couple of decades now that investments in ESG 
more than pay for themselves. And in fact, companies that have focused on ESG outperform their counterparts that don't. Uh, and in some cases, 120% greater return than their counterparts over a five-year time trajectory. It's it's powerful. The problem is, is there's sort of a fiction that exists in our in a lot of the sort of business mindset that says, that's a distraction. That's expensive. We can't do that. The reality of it is, no, it's not the case. And in fact, a lot of business is going to be left by the wayside in just a few short years because there's an entire generation right now, the millennials, who are looking for purpose-led organizations. 80, 85% of them worldwide want to be part of an organization, a business that actually is contributing to the greater good. Well, and, you know, tacking on to that, they are vivid visionaries. Yeah. And they're starting to flow in now into the C-suite positions. There's no, they don't want any more managers. They want leaders. And they have, uh, they've kind of disrupted that nine to five model before COVID. And they want to know what the deliverables are. What do you need for me? And it may not be done in traditional nine to five fashion. Not only is it done, it's exceeding expectations and they're home at five o'clock to have dinner with their family. So it's almost like this migration, John, when you look back yeah. and think of, I'm going to date myself here before my time, though, because uh, I'm right after the baby boomers by one year. It reminds me of growing up and looking at, you know, June Cleaver. Yeah. Dressed like she was going to the office, but dinner, you know, was made when Ward got home and they all sat down with the kids and had a conversation and I look at the onset of what the pandemic has done and families are back at the table. Families are making bread and everybody's at home, whether it's remote working. I know some folks are back or we have our essential workers. There's a real mix. But the point is the value of family has returned back to where it is. And the millennial generation is like, don't worry, we'll get it done but it's not going to be in the constraints of an old model. And it's so interesting to witness and observe because I have leaders who are baby boomers kind of saying, you know, what the, you know what? And I'm like, are you happy with their work? Well, their work's exceptional. And I'm like, so is it because they're not doing nine to five, which is the model, you know, let's sit in the observer's chair. Yeah. Fun conversation. It absolutely is. Deb, can I add to that? Do we have time? For, oh, absolutely. No, please. <laughs> there is a, um, so part of part of the work I've, I've done over the last, it's been the 20 years of being sort of in the academic slash consulting side. And it'll be in the book that's coming out. But but there is a, there's a value creation model that has evolved from, from studying and working with these different companies. And it comes down to four different areas where value is created. And it comes back to what you're describing about what people are looking for. But there, we often look at value as defined by uh, market capitalization. You know, how much is the company worth? The dollar price that day times the number of shares that day. But the reality of it is that's a byproduct of doing three other things well first. One of them is reputational value. And that is, and this is what companies kept telling me, you know, do people trust us? Do partners trust us? Do our consumers and our stakeholders trust us? The second part is organizational value. And organizational value value is do people inside our company feel like their work matters and that it's connected to a greater good? So back to what we were just talking about on ESG and feeling like they're they're part of something because they're restless about it. 
Um, and they want they want to have you know a, an organization that's going to help them feel like their work matters. The third area is societal value, and that is, are we engaged with the communities that we're serving? Meaning, we don't just have a presence in a local market and we employ a few people, but we actually are part of the fabric of that community. We actually are are doing things that are helping give back to that community in a much more profound and sustainable way. Um, you do those three things well, then the byproduct is that fourth dimension, which is financial value. Well, we've had it wrong for decades. I shouldn't say wrong, but we have taught it, I think, incorrectly for decades in business schools. We often fall, you know, fall prey to the capital asset pricing model, return on investment, and all these things that you need to do because that's what hard-charging leaders do. Reality of it is those are the that's a byproduct of doing the other things well. And so that's one of the things that's animating uh, much of the insight around why this pivot is so important uh, for organizations. And the evidence is there. I mean, customers everywhere, consumers everywhere are saying, we want this. Well, and I look at all the global challenges right now for leadership, which we could have a whole other podcast on. Yeah. And, the, and the number one thing that intersects them all is connection with people. Yeah. Hence the podcast. (laughs) Okay, we're going to have some fun. I'm going to switch to what I call my fast fab four, because we want to know what's sitting on the top of that brilliant mind of yours. First question, tell us something that we don't know about John. Oh, something that we don't know about John. Well, um, oh my goodness. I, uh, it's a... (laughs) Part of it is, is what may not be coming across in this interview a lot, but a lot of people I've worked with over time would know that I spend a fair amount of time. I don't spend it intentionally, it just comes out. I tend to be a little bit irreverent in the sense of humor that sometimes might be overbearing. So I try to dial that back a little bit. And, and my family knows and the coworkers know it. It's never offensive, but it's always it's like, oh, there's a dad joke, um, that kind of thing. Well, I like that. You get one chance to make a first impression. So go big or go home, right? You know, and part of it is it's, it's, I have found that one of the easiest ways to create an opening door to a conversation is to be a bit self deprecating and to, um, to let people know that you're human. Uh, Absolutely. You know, I just, you know, for me, there's always room for humor and, and to be really transparent when I'm in, a deep thought or conversation with an executive. It's the nicest way to just let a little air out and relieve a little cognitive pressure. Yeah. And yeah. they look at me, we have a laugh. Let's hit the reset button. Let's start again. Because sometimes you can get so pigeonholed, I think, from a thought process that you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. And humor is always a nice way to shift. And as you said, pivot, transform, whatever verb you want to throw in here. Yeah. It's kind of like music. It is. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's soothing for our hearts. It's good for our soul. And who doesn't like to laugh? A little bit like music, more probably more like jazz, right? Yeah. So you're kind of improvising as you go through it. And, and I know in workshops, I mean, that, that spark of insight that suddenly says, oh, this might work well here. And you you break the ice a bit and people start to engage a bit more. So absolutely, I agree with you. All right. Question number two. Please finish this sentence for me. Heart-centered leadership is? It's about people who care about others first. It is. We're just going to put a period there. I love that. 
Now, normally, my third question, I like to ask, what book are you reading? But I'm going to change that for you because I know you're writing right now. So do tell. So I, a little bit of what I mentioned earlier is, is a hint towards the book. I'm, I'm finalizing the manuscript right now. Um, and it is about uh, the title of the book is Radical Business. Um, and it's about what businesses need to do to transform in the age of perpetual crises. Um, and and it's, it is the byproduct of not only my own career uh, in Fortune 500 and then entrepreneurial ventures, but also the academic side and then the consulting side. Um, and it's a realization that actually this isn't a heavy lift in that the capability exists in organizations. What they haven't had is either a, an economic model showing how to make this transition and or be a business model that says, here's how we can structure around this kind of a transition. So I'm focusing uh, the book around that with some really terrific insights from companies around the world that I've worked with and done research on. I've had wonderful conversations with a wide range of folks uh, globally, not only in North America, but worldwide. Um, the people who are head of either ESG movements um, or responsible, like in California, a uh, uh, person who works for Governor Gavin Newsom there, um, uh, name's Kate Gordon, and, and she does the uh, Office of uh, Policy and Research. Uh, Ravi Kumar, who is with uh, Infosys, he's president of Infosys out of India. Um, Jonathan Reichenthal, who's a, who's a smart cities expert. Um, uh, Janice Lau, who is an environmental scientist and developmental economist, uh, who has just given some terrific TED Talks and this stuff. Anyway, I mention all that because these folks are at the they're at the the leading edge of this stuff right now. They are they are paving the path for what organizations need to do, and their insights are what are kind of galvanizing uh, the final focal points of what I'm doing on the book. Well, Did that answer I, your question. I kind of wanted it does. all this. No, and you know, I'm sitting here smiling ear to ear because we're looking at each other on video. It's so needed, and what I love about it is it's going to have your context your relationships with people like look at all of the the great leaders that you've listed look at all the multi-sector this is your heart-centered leadership at its best bringing it all into a book so i look forward to the email one day when you say deb it's getting released and and here's the link and kudos to you john that's amazing you will definitely get the email and you'll definitely get the book too uh, I definitely I'm holding you to that. I've got I've got you on recording now. So you're, you're, I tell everybody you're stuck with me for life but on the podcast. I'm a life sentence. Now, my last question is, what is one thing that you want our listeners to remember about you? Oh, uh, look, a couple of key things. Number one is, is much like you, I am so absolutely switched on, turned on, and excited about this particular period of time, despite all the stuff we've talked about that's very heavy in the world. Um, I just think this is one of the best times for all of us to um, to make the change we need, right? Um, and, and while that's a generic statement, I absolutely think it's true. Look, I just left my prior organization a, a month ago uh, after being with them for six and a half years because I be, feel so strongly about what I'm doing about uh, this book and where it's going to um, where it's going to go. And I believe it's an important message to get out there. And I believe for anybody out there, you know, Winston Churchill once said that, you know, don't waste a good crisis. And I, and, and while you would never wish a global pandemic with the devastation that's wrought across the world on anybody, it is also an opportunity to say, what can we do differently? 
And I am so excited by what I'm seeing. I'm, I'm to your to the name of your podcast, Heart Center. I'm heartened by what organizations are trying to do, what leaders are trying to do, because they realize what we have been doing for the past century is unsustainable. How we've treated each other in the workplace is unsustainable. Uh, what fabulous leaders and thought leaders like you are doing to help surface the importance of how we help each other is where sustainable uh, greatness will come from in the future. Um, when we absolutely have this wonderful opportunity right now. And uh, and so that's what I want people to recognize. There is no time better than the present to make the kinds of changes that, that we're advocating. Well, and don't be afraid to share your feelings or your thoughts or your opinions. I started this podcast eight weeks into COVID because all of my leaders were saying, Deb, what do I tell my people? And I'm like, what do you mean? What do you tell your people? You tell them that you don't know what you don't know. You, yeah. as the information comes, you will share it. It's scary. You're leading the ship. You can't see. You're blinded, but you're doing your best. And you're going to check in to make sure you foster and keep this culture vibrant and healthy. And I kept hearing myself saying imperfect and heart-centered. And I'm <laughs> like, okay, I got something here. And you know what? I will act now. You get a good thought implement it because at least if you fail you get to get back up and fail forward yes and yeah that, and I, that's powerful i love that because that to me is the driver of progress for anybody anything any organization and that is it, you don't want to look back and say i i wish i'd tried this you can try and make it and even if you didn't like you said you learn you learn and you step forward and you adjust and you pivot and it's like we do in organizations we just need to do that ourselves individually Oh, absolutely. And that's why I've created the heart-centered leadership model. I've intersected it with my coaching. And there's a lot of people on this earth and there's not enough of us. So I'm excited for the work that you're doing. And if anybody takes away anything from this interview, you can make new connections and reach out and have a great conversation like I've done today with John. So Thank you for being on this heart-centered leadership journey with me. And it's been a delight to interview you today. And I'm, I'm grateful for your time and expertise. But I'm super, super grateful that you shared your heart today. Oh, Deb, thank you so much. I am a big fan and I'm delighted to see year two kicking off. And uh, you're going to be doing this for the next 50 years. It's going to be fantastic. Well, I'm thinking so. I just turned 55 and, you know, they, in Canada, I don't know about the States, but when you turn 100, you get a letter from the Queen. So I know she will not be here, but I'm, I'm waiting. I'm going to hold out for that letter from William and Kate. So there's, uh, when I get asked what I'm doing with this podcast, I will continue to enjoy one meaningful conversation at a time. So thanks so much, John. Now, uh, thank you too. And you don't know about the queen. She might surprise us all. You know, she might. She, she, she is a royal leader for sure. So what a nice way to end the podcast. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Deb. Great talking to you. You too. You've been listening to the Heart Centered Leadership Podcast. I'm Deb Crow. If you like what you heard today, please rate and review the show. And I'd love it if you'd visit my website at debcrow.com, where you can sign up for my newsletter and get access to the Heart-Centered Leadership Toolkit, all free of charge. Thanks for your time, and we'll see you again.